Well, when your best friend asks you to come and speak, it's kind of hard to say no. But I had to say to Marlon, you know, that's a pretty difficult time for me to make it up here. Um, some of you may know at Eastern Mennonite University, we had a, a board meeting this weekend, and uh, I was involved in that board meeting until late yesterday afternoon. And I thought, you know, East Chestnut Street may not want to hear from someone from EMU at this time if I uh, come right after that board meeting, depending on what the decision is that's announced. So I, I hope that none of you have decided to uh, rule out listening to me because of the uh, decision that was made yesterday uh, by our board. But if you have questions about that, that's a different topic. I'm not going to go into that in my uh, message here today. But I do welcome your questions about that, and I would be prepared to talk with you about that afterwards. But as Marlon said, I'm here primarily in my role as a friend of Marlon's, but also someone who believes strongly, strongly in the importance of belonging and finding our place in both church and family as our God-given place to belong. So all of my um, focus will be around that topic of belonging. And I'm really grateful that you as a congregation have given me this opportunity to share with you today. As I thought about possibly saying, no, I couldn't do it, I also realized that for East Chestnut Street, I actually owe you something. And uh, I owe you because back in, I believe it was 2005... Uh, we were really in need of a new director of athletics. And uh, some of you are laughing already. You know what I'm going to say. We managed to recruit uh, Dave King, and that brought us both Dave and Deb and their gifts and their family. And um, we've been greatly blessed by them. And not only in terms of Eastern Mennonite University, but they chose without my arm twisting to go to Zion Mennonite Church, where I also go. And Dave and I ended up being elders together, and Deb, the worship leader, and uh, Lisa is very much involved in there as a student and uh, has returned here now to your congregation. So that connection also gave me another reason not to say no, but to say yes and uh, join you here today. I'm going to tell you right from the start that I believe that everyone here today was created to belong. I believe this through my study of human behavior as a psychologist, but even more because I have personally experienced the power of having a place to belong. Of course, I've seen firsthand the devastation caused by someone not feeling like they're a part of their community. When that happens, some may be bullied, they may be left out of activities with peers, but it's clear that we are all motivated to belong. If you look at the experiences of young people, that's why some of them will endure what is sometimes called hazing or beatdowns in order to get onto a team or even perhaps a fraternity or sorority are joining a gang. It's not surprising. Uh, If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, 
after we've met the first level of physiological basic needs for food, water, rest, and air, and then we have sufficient safety at the second level where we're not constantly feeling like we're in danger and uh, at risk of being attacked or harmed, the third level is to seek a place to belong and a place to be loved. Well, since I said that all of us have that need, I'm acknowledging that need for myself as well. And what's profound to me is that every single one of you here could be coming up here to speak because all of you have a story to tell. And in my work as a psychologist, I really felt blessed as I listened to the stories of of my clients who came to see me in my years of practice, and they would tell me their stories. I'm going to share my story today, and it's not because I'm particularly proud, but it's because I trust and pray that it may help some of the rest of you that struggle to know where you belong. In my case, I had a somewhat hidden sense of inferiority and a lot of insecurity about belonging, and it came from knowing right from the get-go that I didn't have what some would view as the right parentage or upbringing that most others had. Some might even use language that I hope isn't generally used of perhaps being maybe a bad seed. You see, my mother Dorothy was 17 years old when I was born. Now that's the same age as Sarah Palin's daughter was when she got pregnant, but this was 1956. And my mother was a huge embarrassment to her parents, Emanuel and Froney Nafziger. Emanuel was the oldest in a family of 13 children that included Melville Nafziger, who's here today. And Melville is the next to youngest boy in the family. The other factor that made the pregnancy even more scandalous, my mother, quote, got in trouble. Some of you may remember that language. She got in trouble by going out partying with the wrong crowd. She either didn't know for sure who my father was or she didn't want to marry him. But either way, she refused to tell anyone in her family who he was. So get that. As a result, I grew up with my maternal grandparents, Emmanuel and Froney, in the town of Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Is there some irony there? Uh, For the first seven years of my life, and my mother, Dorothy, had to drop out of Peckway Valley High School to work menial jobs at Victor Weaver Poultry Plant and then as a cook and house cleaner at Plain and Fancy Farm. Some of you are acquainted with those places. Now, here's something very interesting. Peckway Valley High School, the public school, would not allow my mother to attend as a pregnant student. They basically kicked her out. Here's the contrast about belonging I want you to hear. How many of you know Linden Mennonite Church? Linden Mennonite Church is not too far from here. At that time, they were so conservative, they didn't allow radios. But guess what? Linden Mennonite Church welcomed me and my mother into the church and even sent my mother baby cards celebrating my birth. It was very touching to read them when I found them in a shoebox. 
where my mother kept them. Obviously, their acceptance of me was important to her. My mother and I lived next door to the fire station in one of the last houses in intercourse to get indoor plumbing. The fire hall helped us purchase a plumbing system so they could tear down the old outhouse that bordered the fire hall property. I was told later that it was an embarrassment to the ladies' auxiliary to have to walk past our outhouse to go to the fire hall. You can imagine. When I went to first grade, I was behind in writing because I didn't go to kindergarten. The first day when I was asked to write my name on the board for talking out of turn, the teacher thought I was being defiant by writing my name sloppily, so she paddled me in front of the class. Now, it was not a very effective way to encourage good penmanship, so I ended up with a D in penmanship, and my students and family can verify that I still have awful handwriting. But my first grade teacher was not surprised. After all, I came from a home without a father. Now, there's a B word that some used to describe me back then. But thankfully, I didn't hear it too often. If you look up the literal meaning of bastard, it's defined as one conceived out of wedlock, perhaps by the side of the road. That may have been technically accurate, but certainly it was not a compliment. It just served as another reminder that I was different from everyone else and didn't really belong. Well, when my mother turned seven, my mother got her big break because she had faithfully remained in the church and shown that she was truly repentant. She married the son of a Mennonite farmer who was preparing to take over his dad's farm, Leon Kreider. I then changed my last name from Nafziger to Kreider and went to live in a temporary trailer that Marlon mentioned on a steer and potato farm in Kinzer, Pennsylvania. I gained a stepfather who taught me to take care of animals. It was primarily steers compared to Marlon, who had all those cows to look after. And we also had rabbits. I did seasonal chores on the farm, primarily picking potatoes and baling hay. And I had the opportunity to play Little League Baseball. I also gained a neighborhood best friend from second grade on, and uh, that happens to be Marlon Groff, who lived on a neighboring farm. I have to tell you, besides walking the Hoover Road to school, the very first day I went to second grade, I just walked along with Marlon. We were both going to second grade, so I went to school, and I just walked with Marlon to Marlon's class. Turns out, I hadn't been registered But I did get to stay in that class because I told the principal, I want to be with my neighbor Marlon. (laughs) And they allowed that back then at Salisbury Elementary. Good lesson for uh, principals, right, Marlon? (laughs) Well, this move seemed like a new lease on life. And one would say I now had an opportunity to fit into that so-called, what would appear on the surface to be a traditional-looking family. Father, mother, and little boy. And that was very positive. But then other aspects came into our lives. My stepfather developed MS, and he began as a result of his MS to go blind. What does it mean for a young would-be farmer to begin to go blind? He realized he wouldn't be able to take over the family farm, and that led to his descent into anger and depression. And that anger and depression 
he took out on my mother and me. One night, after he had thrown me against the wall because I hadn't done something right, I had enough. I heard my mother crying as I went to bed, so I snuck out and at age 13 drove the family car about seven miles to Intercourse where I knew my old townie friends were sleeping out. I showed Marlon that route this morning as we were coming from Kinzer here to church. I'm just glad I made the right-hand turn off of Route 30 with a big truck on my back at about 9.45 at night. I hadn't driven on that road before. At age 13, um, I wasn't quite prepared for that. Well, we ended up driving all around that night to various diners along Route 30. The names have changed, but you can identify some of them. And we just went out to eat and smoke cigarettes and have a good time. Marlon wasn't along, if you were wondering. (laughs) Well, that kind of a joy ride ended in the morning when the Pennsylvania State Police came to find me in the car in intercourse. Fortunately, the policeman didn't arrest me. But he sent me home with my paternal grandfather, Grandpa Leroy Kreider, who listened to my story of why I had run away. And here's a key for you to listen to as a church and as family. Leroy believed me. He believed me. And he confronted his son, and his son became angry at him. Grandpa Kreider then called both the bishop and pastor of Kinzer Mennonite Church to help him deal with his son. What did they do? They insisted that my stepfather get help for his emotional needs. That was a profound moment that led me to trust that the church was looking out for me and seeking to protect me and my mother. Kinzer Mennonite Church and my extended Kreider family provided a safe haven for me to belong. That place to belong and feel loved saved me from continuing down the road towards what many would say is probably becoming a juvenile delinquent. That's what most people would have expected for someone like me. When my stepfather was hospitalized, here's where things get very interesting. It became very complicated when my stepfather was hospitalized. My mother had to figure out where she was going to work, what she was going to do, and she wanted to make sure as an only child I was well taken care of. Well, where did she turn? She turned to her aunt and uncle, Melville and Esther Nafziger. Melville and Esther Nafziger lived in Gap, neighboring to Kinzer, and Melville was a pastor at Maple Grove Mennonite Church, her uncle. And she told and shared her problem with Melville. And Melville and Esther agreed that it would be helpful and wise if I were able to come and live with them during the week while my mother was busy taking care of her situation and working. And then on weekends, I would be with my mother. Now, I have to say... They already had six children. You know, it's not like they needed more kids around, but in their hearts, they saw that there was something that they could do. And they opened their home to me to help out while my mother was um, in need. And so I continued to go to Peckway Valley School, High School, but I was no longer living right next door to Marlon and uh, Marlon Groff. Um, 
and I um, was then able to um, be there in the start of my eighth grade year. Now here, again, another twist. After about five months living there and then joining my mother on the weekends, my mother was tragically killed in an auto accident in February of 1970. She was traveling to Ephrata, Pennsylvania to help her mother take care of my grandfather, Emmanuel. At that point, I was devastated. And as an only child, it felt, with my stepfather hospitalized, that I was an orphan at the age of 13. Now, where did I belong? Well, here again, speaking of family, my great aunt and uncle Esther and Melville told me in no uncertain terms that they felt it was God's will that he had brought me to their family and even uh, that they wanted me to become part of their family. And I still remember Mother Esther holding my hand and telling me that wonderful news. I wept with relief, knowing that someone cared about me, and God was again looking out for me by providing a place for me to belong. And I credit my new parents, Melville and Esther, with going beyond the call of duty. And I can't thank them enough. And Melville's here today. Esther passed on in uh, 2010, but she's been aware of this, and I've been able to share this with her as well. And I can't thank them enough for that. In the process, I gained three brothers and three sisters, with me now being next to youngest. And two of my sisters are here. Uh, the other thing about the providential aspects of our deciding to do it today is we had a family reunion yesterday at uh, Landis Homes. And so I have a sister, Judith, who came all the way from Arizona and is able to be here today, and a sister, Lois, who's currently living close to Philadelphia. So I'm very grateful that they're able to be here today representing my new Nafziger family. Now, there was a challenge even here because I said I gained three brothers and three sisters. Guess what? They got stuck with another Ken in the family that already had a Ken. (laughs) Now, the convenient thing was I was about this tall back then. And so I was Kenny and he was Ken. But it wasn't too long till that distinction was lost and I no longer was Kenny. But we had two Ken Nafsigers in the same family, which then greatly helped me later when dealing with two Ken Nafsigers when I got to Eastern Mennonite University. (laughs) And I had to wonder how many of you here were uh, at least a little bit disappointed that you weren't getting the music man. Uh, Instead, you got stuck with a psychologist today. And, uh, you know, it's not nearly so exciting as someone that can really uh, get you going with music. But anyway, early on, I learned to deal with that. And uh, they called me Sonny Lee or uh, Kenny or some good other nicknames. But the key was I had a place to belong. That also led to another big change. I wrapped up my um, eighth grade year at Peckway Valley where Marlon and I had gone together. And, um, but come to find out, my mother had, and, and stepfather had never legally changed my name from Nafziger to Kreider. So when I found that out, 
I went back to being Ken Nafziger and started at Lancaster Mennonite with a different name. At LMH, I found a key group of close friends, Marlon Groff, who chose to go to Lancaster Mennonite, providentially, Jim Lapp, Dave Kaufman, Tim Landis, and my cousin, who is now my brother, Marlon Nafziger. So another Marlon. So their influence was key throughout my high school years. The other key, and speaking of a place to belong, the Mennonite Youth Fellowship happened to meet in our basement every week from Maple Grove Mennonite Church. And my father, Melville, actually had the gumption to meet with that group every week and sometimes talk about topics that we're reluctant to talk about, like sex. And we grew up in an environment where talking about sex and dating and understanding how to address those interests and ideas was not put at a distance, but was something that was clearly part of the conversation in the church. And I say that was extremely valuable for our youth group and, in fact, may have contributed to the fact that there were often 30 to 40 attending that youth group. Well, everything I did from then on, I really felt in my heart that God was looking out for me and that I really was blessed. But I constantly felt the need to try to excel to prove that I was worth something. It helped that in high school... I played soccer, and I was a, an athlete in college. I even played two years with Dave King at EMU on the soccer team. And uh, I'll let you figure out which one of us is older. Um, but I, I valued putting myself into things as best I could. I worked hard. Um, I enjoyed LMS, uh, being senior class president, then going on to graduate from EMU with honors. As Marlon said, teaching at Broadway High School, Afterwards, where we had both student taught and coaching there. And so it would look like on the surface, wow, things are going great, right? And they were. And I was very blessed. I was blessed. I had the chance to uh, serve with Eastern Mennonite Missions in Kenya for three years, getting married to my wife, Judy, who's here with me today, having three children. They were all positive accomplishments and experiences in my life. And then it would look like the culmination of my education and focus in life when I finally got a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, you'd think I had arrived and I would get over my feelings of inferiority and my need to prove myself in order to really belong. But I have to say, at my core, I still felt the need to please others, particularly my academic advisor. My academic advisor was the... uh, editor of the Journal of Counseling Psychology, very esteemed. And I applied for two positions, one at Goshen College and the other at the University of Iowa. Guess which one my advisor wanted me to take? Her bias was, wow, if you can work at University of Iowa, that's good. And as a result, I felt very much the need to please my advisor. So I'm sorry to say I missed the opportunity to go immediately to Goshen College. Even I chose Iowa. Goshen didn't get a, give a chance to offer me a position, but I gave up that opportunity. 
I could have pursued my interest in cross-cultural adjustment, worked with international students, done all that, but instead I chose the University of Iowa because it carried more prestige. I believe I did that at my core because of my own lack of sureness about my own self-esteem. And I felt I needed that outward approval. I'm not sure. I don't think it was a wrong thing, but I think that weighed in. And so I accepted the position at University of Iowa in, in 94, and then in 97 moved to Penn State with an advancement and affiliate faculty status and counseling psychology doctoral program. And it also tied in to uh, moving closer to mother and father Nafziger as they were moving to Landis Homes. So it all fit together. So all that was moving towards how can I advance so that everyone thinks of me as this great psychologist. That was until a letter arrived in 2002. It came from the personnel recruiter at Eastern Mennonite Missions, and she brought us out of our comfort zone. She asked us to think about something other than advancing in status in Big Ten institutions. Susan Godshall invited my wife Judy and me to consider whether we'd return to East Africa to reopen the work among Somalis where we had worked with Eastern Mennonite Missions. We didn't want to immediately say no, but at that point we were both very comfortable in our roles at Penn State where Judy worked as a nurse in the health center. We lived right next to the elementary school and middle school. Our children were comfortable. But the question is, where did we belong as a family? Well, we explored our purpose in life with our small group from University Mennonite Church. We read The Purpose Driven Life. And so finally, after all my years of education and practice in psychology, I really emotionally felt that there was something that told me where I legitimately belonged. And here it is. In chapter 2 of The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren says, quote, You are not an accident. While there are illegitimate parents, there are no illegitimate children. His scriptural basis for not viewing ourselves as illegitimate or inferior came from Romans 12.3 in the message, and that states, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us. From that, we see it's not about what we do to measure up, because we can't. It's not about who our parents are. It's not about our being Mennonite or doing some other or some other correct Christian denomination. It's only about God and what he does for us. Namely, inviting us to be part of his family and share in his inheritance. We are all adopted. We are all adopted into God's family if we choose to be, and thus all equal and legitimate members. From that day on, I just felt an emotional release. I was released of the constant need to seek advancement to prove myself to others. I felt like I could go wherever God wanted me to go, and that would be the best place for me to be. So in thinking about going back to Somalia, Judy and I really felt that that could be a possibility. But my wife, Judy, saw an ad in the paper about an opening at EMU where we both had met each other. And she said to me, you know, that really looks like it fits you. It covers all the areas that you've been working with, working with students, counseling, career services, everything, athletics, all the things you're interested in. 
So as a result, we chose to go to EMU where I can belong to a community that I believe sends and prepares students to go out all over the U.S. and world to serve God. And those students can accomplish much more than Judy and I could accomplish by ourselves going to Somalia. Well, I'm wondering, as you think about your own life, do you question whether you belong in God's family? Do you look around and compare yourself negatively to anyone who appears on the surface to have it all together? Are you like me, as I was, in not knowing one or more of your biological parents? Are you concerned that you're not really a son or daughter because you were adopted? I want you to hear again God's message for you and for me from the scriptures read earlier. In Psalm 68, 4 through 6. Sing to God, sing in praises of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. He is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely and the orphan in families. And again, in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born unto the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship and into the family. Because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's children. And since you are his children, God has made you also an heir. We are all legitimate heirs. We are all legitimate heirs of what God wants to bring to us. My prayer is that all of you can recognize your invitation to be part of the family of God as a way to overcome any lingering feelings that you don't belong or aren't worthy. Being a part of an earthly family, finding a welcoming church family, and knowing that God has adopted me into his heavenly family as one of God's heirs has made all the difference in my life. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Now, how about you? What direction is your life narrative headed? Would some predict a bad ending because of your current trajectory? That would have been true for me. As a strong believer in God's power, I invite you to join with God to rewrite the rest of your story. In that way, your life story can go in a way that's far better than you or anyone else would have predicted. And again I say, to God be the glory, great things he has done.